You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. What an honor to be with you, and it's just an honor to be here. And Joe, thank you so much for inviting me and letting me be part of your fellowship this morning. There's a lot going on in our world, and uh, three services do not suffice to cover it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and we're, so I would encourage you to come back tonight if you at all can. We're going we're gonna to talk more about what's going on in the world right now, how it relates to Bible prophecy, and we're going to answer your questions for as long as we possibly can. I was in Portland last weekend, and uh, I, was, I did maybe a 45-minute Saturday evening uh, service, and then we said, well, let's open it up for a half hour of questions. The total thing went two and a half hours, and I did have three services to preach the next morning, so we pretty much had to cut it off eventually. There's just enormous interest right now. Uh, are we living in the last days? Uh, is there any evidence of that? And if so, so what? What does that mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ? What, it means, what does it mean to you if you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Or if you're a skeptic, or if you're a cynic? Uh, what does this mean for us at this moment? And I'm going to call an audible here at the line of scrimmage. Uh, I know it's a football town. So I... Uh, this morning I preached on 2 Kings chapter 6 uh, and, and a passage called, uh, Lord, open my eyes. And we talked about how we are living in the last days and how evidence of it is the fact that more Jews and more Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ today than at any other time in human history. But I'm not going to talk about that, that uh, for the second service. It's a backdrop. But I want to talk this morning, uh, this portion, on Matthew chapter 24. And this question that Jesus was asked on the Mount of Olives by his disciples, when are you coming back? And what should we be watching for that would be indic- indicative that you're coming back? And Jesus could have given a very Washington political answer. No comment. Next question. <laughs> but he didn't. He spends all of Matthew 24, Luke 21, also in Mark, walking us through a lot of details. And I want us to look at this this morning, and then if, if you, uh, you know, I encourage you to get the CD from the first service so you'll get that information as well. But I, and just a little bit of context uh, as, we, as we get into this, and you can turn to Matthew 24, we'll get into that in just a moment. A little bit of context. Uh, I'm a failed political consultant. That's who I am, okay? I just want to put my cards out on the table right up front, Okay. Uh, I was a senior advisor and deputy campaign manager to Steve Forbes in the 1996 and 2000 presidential elections. I helped him lose both times. Okay. <laughs> I was hired by the former prime minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, in the year 2000 on his comeback campaign. Now, I don't know if you're following Israeli politics. I know you've, got a, you've had a big presidential primary just blow through here, so I'm not sure you're focused on Israel, but... Netanyahu has not yet come back. It's been eight years, okay? I, w- I spent an hour with him at his office uh, six weeks ago or so in Jerusalem. He's way ahead in the polls currently, 
but I, uh, I noticed that he did not ask me to come help him. And I, I, you know, I understand why. And I, uh, th- this apparently was not my gifting, okay? I, uh, 10, 11 years of my life, I did this, helped a lot of people lose, but now I'm out. I've gone through political detox. I'm out, I'm clean. <laughs> the problem was I didn't know, I didn't have any other skills. I mean, I wrote speeches that people didn't listen to. I wrote articles for the newspaper people didn't read. Uh, I gave advice to people that made them crash and burn. So, you know... <laughs> What you, my name is Joel Rosenberg, but I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a dentist or an accountant or a stockbroker. So I pretty much didn't, I, I'm like the one Jew that didn't get the financial gene. They just passed over me. You know, it was a Passover. But like, well, I, 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 I. So I kind of, so at the end of all that, in the year 2001, when President Bush was being inaugurated and I had run a campaign against him, and McCain was now the new best friend of President Bush, and I'd run a campaign against him. And so, you know, I, I thought, maybe I should just make things up for a living. And that's how I got to writing novels. And uh, who knew, though, that writing novels, political thrillers, based on Bible prophecies, how, what, what type of events could happen between now and the time that Jesus comes back for us that would be consistent with... Bible prophecy. In other words, how do we get from where we are today to the events that are specifically mentioned in the Bible? I thought I'd write a series of novels. Well, I thought I'd write one novel. I'd love to have written a, a, a series, but at the time, you know, if, when you write your first novel, you just hope that your parents can find it at a bookstore within a hundred mile radius of, the, radius of their house. The idea that it would become a series, that it would become uh, New York Times bestsellers, uh, that didn't really occur to me. And I tell a little bit of that story in the first service. But the short version is that's what these novels are. Starting with Last Jihad, Last Days, The Ezekiel Option, The Copper Scroll, and now the most recent is Dead Heat. They're all about what if these series of Bible prophecies, end times events, were to actually happen in our lifetime? What would that look like? What would that feel like? How would we have the courage to go through those types of events? And what events... Uh, might precede the events that the Bible specifically details. And that's what the series has been about. Now, the fact that we as followers of Jesus Christ are interested in the return of Jesus, that's not really so big a deal. It's important to us because Jesus tells us to be prepared, to be ready, to be on alert, to not get caught off guard. And unfortunately, many Christians are asleep to what Jesus said to watch for, to the events that are happening in our world today. So that's important that we wake up, especially in light of what we're about to talk about. But what's in, the fact that, you know, people who go to Calvary chapels around the country, around the world, the fact that we're interested, it's not that, that, that's not that new, right? I mean, Pastor Chuck has been teaching on these things. Joe's been teaching on these things for a long time, and it's important. We just did this epicenter conference in Jerusalem. Pastor Chuck, Pastor Skip Heitzig, myself— and a number of other leaders with 2,000 Christian leaders from all over the world at the epicenter in Jerusalem teaching Bible prophecy, uh, both to a world audience uh, that was watching via the Internet, but also to Israel uh, that was watching by television and that was co- being, this was being covered in the newspapers. A lot of Israelis don't know that they're living right in the middle of Bible prophecy and, uh, because they have, they've closed their ears and their eyes to what the scriptures say. This is a new moment, though. 
where it's not just those of us who are believers and excited about Jesus' return that are getting interested in this question, are we living in the last days? This is the number one conversation going on in the Muslim world right now. The president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, is telling... By the way, I want you to say that five times quickly with me. No, I'm just kidding. You can just call him Ahmed Genocide. Because he wants to annihilate two countries to bring about the Messiah, Israel and the United States. That's who he wants to destroy, Judeo-Christian civilization as we know it. Because his eschatology, his end times theology, tells him that the way to hasten the coming of the Islamic Messiah, known as the Mahdi, is to destroy Judeo-Christian civilization. So he's feverishly pursuing nuclear weapons and nuclear alliances to get this job done. And his speeches and, his, the, uh, and, and, and all the things that he's teaching and talking about and doing is whipping up a whole conversation in the Middle East. Are we living in the last days? Is the Messiah coming home, coming back soon? What, should we be, what would be the signs of his return? What would the Messiah be like? And how do we live differently? That's the conversation. In Iran, they now have call centers. You can basically call an 800 number and ask questions about the coming Mahdi and how to live differently in light of this because this is the conversation that's going on throughout the Muslim world. I was, uh, I've been invited over the last few years uh, to speak at the White House, uh, to the Pentagon, to speak at, to members of Capitol Hill on this topic. Are we living in the last days? Uh, last fall, I was invited for the first time I'd ever been invited to speak at the Pentagon to generals and to colonels and to intelligence leaders. And the topic they asked me to speak on was how does Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's eschatology, end time theology, drive Iranian foreign policy and evangelical Christians' perspective. I was asked to speak on that at the Pentagon. Now, I was, I looked at my wife and I said, this must be a mistake. <laughs> I mean, we've lived in Washington at that point 17 years. I'd never been even on a tour of the Pentagon. <laughs> These people are fighting real wars. What do they want me to talk to them about Shiite Islamic end-time theology, much less New Testament, biblical end-time theology. And it just seemed a little like, you know, I don't know, I don't want to take up these people's time on stuff that I think is interesting, but, you know. But literally the day before I went to speak, Iranian president, I'm sorry, Russian president Vladimir Putin traveled to Tehran, Iran, to form an alliance with Iran. Just like Ezekiel 38 tells us, Russia will form an alliance with Iran and Libya and a group of other Middle Eastern countries in the last days. That's what the novel series is about. That's what my book and film Epicenter are about. It's about that particular alliance. What, how would we get to that moment? And there they were in Tehran together. So when I got to the Pentagon at 6 a.m. the next morning, Wednesday morning, the front page of the New York Times, the front page of the Washington Post, the Washington Times all had big pictures of Putin and Ahmadinejad shaking hands, and everyone in the building, everyone in Washington was asking, what in the world is going on with these two? Why is Russia forming an alliance with Iran? And suddenly, the topic didn't seem so far-fetched. It was now something that was on people's minds. Well, this brings us to this question. Jesus asked was asked on the Mount of Olives, hey, when are you coming back? 
And when, when are all these things going to happen? And what are the things we should be watching for? And he, it's very interesting, his responses. So let's go through and look at a little bit of this. Now, let me start by saying that uh, I want to skip ahead to verse 36, because this is the most important verse in Matthew 24, in my view, starting in verse 36, where Jesus says, Of that day and hour, about his return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, Jesus says, be on the alert. Now, Noah had never seen rain, nor had anyone else on the planet in Genesis. But Noah knew something big was happening. Did he know the day? Did he know the hour? Did he know exactly how it was all going to play out? No, but he knew that God had said something big is going to, be, is going to happen. Get yourself ready. Get your family ready. Make a way of escape for anyone who's willing to listen. And then events began to be set into motion. And Jesus says, he's not going to throw the game for us, but we need to be ready because we'll be living in the days of Noah. Now I should note that my wife, Lynn, and I have four sons, Caleb, Jacob, Jonah, and Noah. <laughs> if we're holding them back in any way, we thought, from coming back, we ought to have a Noah. So now we have a Noah. He's been here, you know, he's almost four, and he's been to Israel three times. So in case you didn't know, we're, we're in the days of Noah. Don't let anyone tell you you weren't warned. Okay, because that's what Jesus said. He's not coming back again until the days of Noah. So now we're ready. Now, even though we don't know the day and the hour, you know, that's a very narrow slice of time, a day and an hour, right? You know the season. You might say, hey, I've got season tickets um, to the Eagles, right? Is that how you say it? And uh, you might say, all right, I don't know exactly what time that game's going to start, but I know it's coming up soon. Well, you would know probably. You're, you would know. A visitor might not know exactly, but you, you would know. But, you know, when the, when the stands start to fill up and people start selling popcorn and the team's warming up on the field, you know, hey, it's going to start pretty soon. That's what we're looking for, those types of signs. And what does Jesus say? Well, beginning in verse 5, he says, well, verse 4, actually, he's, he warns the disciples, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and will mislead many. Now, that's fascinating because three times in Matthew 24, Jesus warns, uh, warns of false religions, false prophets, false messiahs. And in fact, uh, he says it again in verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And then in verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise, Jesus says, and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, hey, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. 
Or look, he's in the inner room. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You have to understand. Now, you have to understand we are seeing a rise all over the world of people who are all these false religions, false uh, prophets, false messiahs. And in fact, Ahmadinejad in Iran is saying that any moment the Mahdi will come. Jesus tells us that, the, that, that false messiahs will come, some with signs and wonders. So this raises an important question. Is it possible in the next few weeks or months or years, somebody's going to come and Ahmadinejad or other Islamic leaders will say, that's the one, that's the Messiah. Now, Shiite Islamic theology describes that the Messiah will not come to Jerusalem. He will not come to Iran. He will not come to Europe. He will go to Mecca and Medina in the wilderness. And then he'll go from there, not to Jerusalem or to Rome or to uh, Tehran, but he will go to Iraq and he will set up his global empire, his Islamic caliphate from Iraq. This is one of the reasons that the Iranians are doing so much to create conditions of chaos and carnage inside Iraq. Because Islamic theology for the Shiites, this is different from the Sunnis, uh, but for the Shiite Muslims, of which Iran, that they are Shiites, they believe that you need to create the conditions of chaos and carnage. That the way to hasten the coming of the Messiah is to kill tens of millions of people. And into that moment, the Mahdi will come and create justice and peace. In fact, they believe that Jesus will come... But he will come not as the king of kings and the lord of lords to whom everyone will bow down. The Shiite Muslims believe that Jesus will come as the deputy, the lieutenant to the Mahdi, and will force all Jews and Christians who are left to bow down and worship Allah, become a Muslim, or perish. This is the theology. And, and the number one militia that we are fighting, American forces are fighting in Iraq, is the Mahdi army led by Muqtada al-Sadr, who's one of these true believers that his job is to create chaos in Iraq so the Messiah can come and solve it. He doesn't want the United States to solve it. He doesn't want the coalition forces to solve it. He doesn't want uh, Iraqi President Jalal Talabani to solve it. He needs there to be chaos. Iran needs there to be chaos because that's what their eschatology, their end times theology says. Jesus tells us to be on guard for things like this. But that's not all. He says in verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation, kingdoms against kingdom. Well, we're certainly seeing that. And all of the 20th century, uh, we saw it as well. There'll be famines, global food shortages. This is the major news stories going on around our world right now. Riots are going on over food in many and a growing number of third world countries. And of course, you know, you, if you've been to Costco, you know you can only buy a few bags of rice now. now we are not experiencing that shortage yet, but even American uh, food distributors are beginning to prepare for the fact that the rest of the world is starting to go into a severe famine. Jesus told us to watch for this. Earthquakes. Earthquakes in Chicago a couple weeks ago. You got to be kidding me. I mean, I don't know the history of the geology of Chicago, but I don't know of a lot of earthquakes that have been there, uh, you know, in, in recent history. We're seeing earthquakes all over the world. 
And you just continue to go through the list of uh, persecution, apostasy. I, I, I guarantee you that if I were to sit and, and, and be able to spend time with each of you in this room, those of you who describe yourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, I suspect you would have very sad stories of family members and friends and colleagues, people in your Bible studies, people in your fellowship that said that they were followers of Jesus and now have bolted and have, and, and have left the faith and have betrayed you, betrayed your family, betrayed your, your community here. And how sad that makes you. Angry at times, I'm sure, but the sadness. It's, we've hap- it's happening in our own family, in our own fellowship, where my wife and I worship. This is part of what we should see. But on the other hand, there's good news. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that he rose again on the third day to prove to us that he's the only way, that when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, when he says that, he means it. This good news of the kingdom, that God loves us, has a plan for our life, wants to adopt us into his family. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached, Jesus said, in the whole world to all nations as a testimony to all the nations, not just the friendly nations, not just the capitalist nations, not just the democratic nations, but to all nations, dangerous nations, difficult nations, enemy nations. This gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end shall come. This is why I preached on the, in the last service on how more Jews and more Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus today than ever before. And as I finished that sermon, the first guy I met in the hallway was a Jewish man from Afghanistan who had come to faith in Jesus in Afghanistan and now worships in your own congregation. That's like a triple blessing. Jews who we had a partial hardening on our eyes, but the Lord said we'll come to know him in record numbers in the end times. To be a Jew... And to be living in Afghanistan, in a Muslim country, in this time of history, it's amazing that this person would come to know Jesus and and, and give me a hug as opposed to slice my head off, you know. (laughs) Woo! You know, so. uh, And then he's worshiping amongst you. Uh, God is doing an amazing thing. He's doing an amazing thing. And when you look at these signs, and then, of course, course, this is one of my favorite signs, verse 32. In verse 32, we read, Jesus says, Hey, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, what is this parable of the fig tree? Well, if you turn with me for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 24, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, the Hebrew prophet, Jeremiah 24, right after Isaiah, let's look at one of the many references in the scriptures to Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people being the fig tree. It's a symbol that the Bible uses throughout the scriptures. And in Jeremiah chapter 24, the Lord sets two baskets in front of the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah. One basket has figs in it, and the other basket has figs. And, he, and the Lord asked Jeremiah, hey, what do you see? 
And Jeremiah says, I see two baskets. One has figs and the other has figs. And the Lord says, very wise. You're a very smart Jewish boy, Jeremiah. Very good. So now he says, now that what happens is the one basket has good figs. And the second basket has bad figs. And because some of us are a little slower than others, the Lord walks us through what this means. He says, the good figs, in verse 5, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. I'll set my eyes on them for good and bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not overthrow them. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for I will return, for they will return to me with their whole heart. The good figs are Jewish people, the children of Israel, who follow the Lord. But then he goes on to describe the bad figs are those Jewish people, the children of Israel, who decide not to follow the Lord and become a reproach and, 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 and have tremendous resistance to God's plan and purpose for, his, for their lives. Both are figs, both are Jews, both are children of Israel, but some are going to follow the Lord and some won't. Now, Jeremiah is describing this as, uh, this is a, a, a parable that the Lord is teaching Jeremiah for the first return of the Jews. And now Jesus uses this reference to talk about the second coming or the second uh, return of the Jews to rebuild the land of Israel in the last days. What he's saying is when you see Israel reborn as a country, when Jews are coming back to the land, when, uh, when, when the nation of Israel is here again, and some will be following the Lord and some won't. But when you see that happening in the context of all these other signs, Jesus says, know that I'm near, right at the door. Now, there are a lot of other uh, prophecies in the New Testament and in the Jewish scriptures that talk about the last days. Ezekiel 38 and 39, for example, upon which my novel series is written, which this uh, nonfiction book and film, Epicenter, is based, talks about uh, the prophecies of the War of Gog and Magog, where Russia forms an alliance with Iran and with Libya and with a group of other countries to surround and attack Israel in the last days. Ezekiel says that will happen in the last days. As I mentioned, Russia and Iran had never had an alliance for the 2,500 years since Ezekiel said they would until today. Now, two weeks ago, where was the president of Russia? He was in Libya. He was in Libya for two days, signed a $2.5 billion arms deal with Muammar Gaddafi, the terrorist leader of Libya, the anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Israel leader of Libya. And this is interesting because uh, even the Libyan press and the Russian press hail this as a, as a historic visit. Well, sure, this was the first time that any Russian leader in human history had ever gone to visit the nation of Libya. It happened two weeks ago. And the visit, the Russian leader Putin going to Iran, first leader to ever go to Iran, since, a Russian leader, since 1943. Just happened last October. Now, when Joseph Stalin went to Iran in 1943, it wasn't to form an alliance with the Iranians. Russia at that time occupied northern Iran. 
And, he, and, and Stalin wanted to have a meeting with Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So he thought, well, I, I own this country down here, Iran. Why don't we just meet over there? Well, okay. So that's where they met. It wasn't to form an alliance. No Russian leader has ever visited Iran to form a military alliance until Putin. Now, last, uh, two weeks ago, I was on CNN headline news for an entire week on the Glenn Beck show to talk about, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> that was probably for Glenn, but that's okay. Uh, to talk, and he wanted to talk all week about uh, global events, and he wanted me to put them in the context of Bible prophecy. And the final night, Friday night, we did a one-hour special, just Glenn and myself, called Honest Questions About the Last Days. And in that, and this is CNN, people, CNN. I mean, this is not, you know, the Calvary Radio Network. This is not K-Wave. This is, you know, this is not Pastor Chuck. We're talking about Glenn Beck on CNN, talking about the last days. And he said to me, you know, it'd be, I'd be much more popular, he said about himself, if I just had you on for an hour or a week to mock you. But I'm actually curious about these things. And I think other people are curious about these things. And then at one moment, he actually asked me, so Joel, do you believe that Gog, this Russian dictator that Ezekiel described, do you believe that Vladimir Putin is Gog? I just about fell out of my chair. I mean, imagine a moment in history where you're on CNN television and they're asking you if a Russian, current Russian dictator is a fulfillment of end times prophecy that's 2,500 years old and most people aren't even aware that it exists, much less that there are evidences that seem like they are consistent with it coming true. Now, the answer to that question, you'll have to come back tonight. <laughs> no, no, I'm just teasing. No, I, no I'll answer that question. I, I, uh, I said, look, I, I think it's too early to say that Vladimir Putin is God. He's certainly Gog-esque. He's certainly a dictator rising to power. He's certainly forming in alliances that are consistent with all the alliances that Ezekiel said that Russian dictator would but, you know, maybe he's just setting this up for Dmitry Medvedev, who, in, who this coming week will take over as the president of, it, of Russia, handpicked by Putin. Uh, Putin is a, is a short guy. He's five foot seven. Medvedev is 5'4". Uh, uh, Medvedev is about uh, 15 years younger than Putin. I, I don't personally look at this and think a shorter, younger, you know, uh, you know, disciple of Vladimir Putin is going to end up taking over the country, but it's possible. Maybe Medvedev is, is Gog. Maybe the next guy is Gog. I don't know. But, oh, that's probably for me. Uh, and, and, <laughs> that's probably Putin saying, hey, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> but look, the point is not that we know for sure. We do not know for sure. Let me be crystal clear. I don't know if the war of Gog and Magog is going to happen in our lifetime much less soon, just because these events seem to be converging right now. I don't know that, and neither do you, but they could. I mean, I don't think we can rule out now the possibility that we're going to see dramatic end times prophecies like Ezekiel 38 and 39 come true in our lifetime since Ezekiel 36 and 37, the two chapters that precede those two chapters, they've already come true. Ezekiel 36... And 37 are the famous prophecies about Israel being reborn as a country. Jews coming back into the land in record numbers. Uh, the Jews, by God's grace, making the deserts bloom. Rebuilding the ancient ruins. 
having an exceedingly great army and the Lord breathing life back into the Jewish people. That's what those two chapters are about. And those two chapters are coming true in our lifetime. And that begs the question, if Ezekiel 36 and 37 have come true and are coming true in our lifetime, isn't it remotely possible that Ezekiel 38 and 39 could come true in our lifetime as well? And that answer, I think, is yes. It is possible. Not definite, but it's possible. And this leads us to several questions. Well, it leads us to one question, and it depends on where we are. The question is, so what? So what if we're living in the last days? So what if all the things that Jesus said are happening, what would happen, seem to be happening? What, what difference does that make for us? So that's the question. But it has two different applications, whether we're people who describe ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, or whether we're not sure where we stand with the Lord, or we know that we're definitely not followers. So let me start with those of us that do describe ourselves as followers of Jesus. Uh, what, is it, what difference does this make for us? Uh, you know, my fa- mother and father came to know the Lord in 1973. My mother was uh, an agnostic Methodist, a Gentile, daughter of the American Revolution uh, history. My father was an agnostic Orthodox Jew. <laughs> I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but he was raised in a very religious home. His family had escaped out of Russia uh, under the Tsarist persecution, escaped in 1907. He was a first generation born in America, born in Brooklyn. When, he, when my parents met and married, they didn't know what they believed. They knew their religious heritages. They knew their traditions. They didn't really know what they believed. They didn't know how to have a personal relationship with God. They didn't have one, uh, that relationship themselves. And in fact, when my father became a follower of Jesus as the Messiah, he thought he was the first Jew to be a believer in Jesus since the Apostle Paul. <laughs> he thought it went Peter, James, John, Paul, 2,000 years, Len Rosenberg. <laughs> he never heard of a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. He never met a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. And in 1973, there weren't a lot of Jewish people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. But that was then. Now there are more than 300,000 worldwide, up from less than 2,000 back then. Uh, In Israel, there were only a handful, maybe three dozen Jewish believers in Jesus in Israel in 1967 when I was born. Three dozen, maybe, maybe. And I've met a bunch of them already. Now there are more than 15,000 Jewish believers in Jesus in Israel. Well, something is happening. But here's, so for those of us who describe ourselves as believers, and we see these things, we say, all right, here's what Jesus said to watch for. Here's what the other prophets and the apostles told us to watch for. And here's what's happening in our world. And when you match up that list and you describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, then I ask you this, are you planning any major sins in your life right now? Because could I ask you to, you might want to postpone those, you know. You might want to just cancel those outright. This is not a good time to be goofing around. Jesus, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. But it might be a lot sooner than we all think. I don't think this is a good time to be doing something, thinking something, watching something, reading something, listening to something spending time with someone or something for which you would be ashamed, for which I would be ashamed when Jesus does come back for us. Do we really want to meet Jesus and, and be disgusted with ourselves? 
Is this what we want? Uh, the apostle John, whom Jesus loved so dearly and who loved Jesus so dearly, says it so gently in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. He, he puts it this way. Now, little children, abide in him, in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I believe this is a moment to call all of us to repentance. We define repentance for our little kids. I, I take my little son Noah and I said, all right, Noah, I want you to run across the room. And he starts running. I say, stop, Noah. And he stops. I said, repent, Noah. And he turns around. I said, come back to daddy. And he comes running across the room and jumps in my arms and gives me a hug and a kiss. That's repentance. We're going that way. And the Lord's saying, stop. You're going the wrong way. You're doing your own thing. You're living your own life, but you're going that way, and it's the way from the Father. And the Father, in his gentleness, in his love, in his kindness, is saying, stop. You don't understand. There's a cliff out there, and every inch you're further away from me is further away from my blessings. He's saying, stop, turn around, and come back, and I will care for you, and I will hug you, and I will take care of you. I will wash you up. I will clean off your little scraped knees, and we'll get you back in the game. This is what the Lord is calling us to now. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Some of you for a short time. But some of you, if you're honest, even though to the outside world, to your home fellowship group, to your colleagues here, to somebody sitting next to you, it maybe it looks like your life is all together. But you know in your heart you're not walking with him. And you would be ashamed of him when he comes for you. Not of him, but of yourself, that he would be ashamed of you. Look, this is the moment. Today's the day to wipe that slate clean. In a moment, I'm going to pray for you. And I pray that you'd make that decision. And live differently. You know, my wife and I, we, you know, okay, so we're writing novels. That's awesome. I mean, my wife edits them, and, and, and I, I write them, and she tries to keep me from making a complete fool of myself. And, she, you know, she's doing a pretty good job, but sometimes I just go overboard. But anyway, uh, the Lord is opening up this opportunity for us as a family. But that even then, we say to ourselves, you know, we don't want to stand before Jesus one day and hey, say, hey, Joel, Lynn, that's really nice that you wrote those novels. But what part of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations? What part of that do you not understand, son? What part of Matthew 25, feed those who are hungry, give water to those who are thirsty, clothe those who are naked, care for those who are sick and in prison and suffering. What part of that, Joel, do you not understand, son? I mean, is it in Greek? Well, okay, actually it is, but you know, <laughs> you had all those translations. Jesus has given us orders. He's adopted us into his family, but he's given us, and so holiness is a, is a high standard, but it's not just a holiness, it's impact. Eternal impact, preaching the gospel, making disciples, helping people to worship and grow in their faith, but also caring for those in need. My wife and I started an organization a couple of years ago called the Joshua Fund to, to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, to provide food and clothing and medical supplies and other humanitarian relief to those in Israel, to those in Iraq, uh, to those in the West Bank and Gaza and elsewhere. Because Jesus told us to do it. We can, how, how can we stand before him one day and say, did you ever hear of the story of the Good Samaritan? Does that ring any bells? 
Well, I thought that was for someone else. Well, how, how, why? I mean, this, we don't want, I mean, Jesus has laid out some difficult but simple things. And the question is, are you and I as followers of Jesus hitting those marks? A life of holiness and a life of impact and a life of compassion. We'd love to get you involved and teach, uh, let you know more about what we're doing with Joshua Fund. There's some brochures in the back. You can also sign up if you want on our email newsletter list. It's a, it's a free email called Flash Traffic. And I, it's about every week or two with geopolitical updates, what's going on in the world, as well as what's going on with the Joshua Fund, prayer requests for the Middle East. Uh, recently, for those who weren't able to watch the Glenn Beck show, I would send out uh, uh, either excerpts or full transcripts of those shows. So that may be something that you want to sign up for and, and get a little sense of what we're doing. If God is already using you to bless people in Israel and, and the Middle East and elsewhere, then the Joshua Fund may not be something that God puts on your heart. But if it is, we would love to get you involved. But let me close by asking those of you who aren't really sure this morning if you really have a personal relationship with Jesus, if you really know for sure that you're going to heaven, if you're not sure, in a moment I'm going to lead us in prayer and I want to give you that opportunity. I can't teach on this question of are we living in the last days? and walk out of a congregation like this without giving you that opportunity to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven, that when Jesus comes back for us, that you're coming with us. I can't force you to, to believe or to, or to accept. I, that's not my intention. I'm not leading them to the crusades. I'm, it's not the Inquisition. Look, our, you know, my family understands what it means to escape from people who say they believe in Jesus but want to force their religion, force their faith, if that's what it was, on other people. I don't want to do that, but I implore you, given the world that we live in, given the signs that Jesus offered us, that he is near, that he's right at the door, not to wait, not to goof around, to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning and start a whole new life. Are you going to know every detail of how your life is supposed to go from here? No, I was, I had a, I was at a Starbucks a few months ago. I'd been asked by a, one of my readers uh, who happened to live locally. He sent me an email and he said, look, I, I'm Jewish. I've been reading your books. I, I've been reading your weblog. I got a lot of questions. Can we just get together for coffee? And so we got together and we were sitting and chatting. And he said, look, I think I've actually come to the point where I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died on the cross to pay for my sins, that he rose again. But my father's father was a rabbi, started our, our synagogue, and I, I don't really know what to do because I feel like I'm going to, on one hand, I feel like I'm going to betray them. And I said, I, I, look, I understand that. That's what Jesus faced. People coming to him, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, coming to him at night saying, could we go over this again? Because <laughs> I'm not sure how to handle this, you know? This is hard. But more Jews and more Muslims are making this decision. Why? Because the Lord is opening our hearts. He's opening our eyes. He's helping us to realize that it's more important to be right with him, with the Father, and to do everything we can to be at peace with our family members and our colleagues and our community. But Jesus did say, I, I came to divide people. 
You have to make a choice. Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. Neutrality is, is still against him. And the consequences of living against Jesus are so horrific. It's just not worth it. And so that was one issue, betrayal. But the other issue he had was this issue of, I don't know what it's going to, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't, I, I've got so many other questions about who God is and, and what, what he expects of me and all these other issues. And he, I was trying to answer some of them and I, then I realized that, I, you know, he's just got tons of questions. I said, here, here here's, let me, let me just lay this out. We, we have a mutual friend, um, a couple who had introduced us, uh, me and this guy, and he, uh, th- this couple is about to adopt um, uh, some children from uh, an African country. And, and these, this couple is a very strong believer couple. We have, my wife and I had been to lead them into the kingdom and then help them grow, and now they were, you know, he, he and his wife were sharing with this guy and his wife. So all that to say, I said, these guys are about to adopt two children from, I think it's from Ethiopia. I said, now when they land and they get to the airport and they meet those children, those children have a choice to make. Do they have any idea what life in America is going to be like? How, how could they? Do they have any idea what this couple is really like? I know their character. I know their love. I know how far they're going to go to, to bless these two children. But those two kids don't know. They're just scared. They're just standing here saying, I'm either going to be adopted by a family that came halfway around the world to love me, or I get to stay in a war-torn country with nobody to love me. What, you know, and I said to this young man, that's what the Lord did. Jesus came to you to adopt you into God's family. I know you don't understand the whole thing. I get that. I didn't either. That's a whole lifetime of getting to know the parent that loves you, the father who sent his son for you to rescue, to bring you into the kingdom. But the question is, if you believe that Jesus has died for you now, that he's come to rescue and adopt you into his family, then now is the time to say yes, because he's leaving on a jet plane. And I don't know when he's coming back again, not to get into too much old John Denver on you, but you know, he got the reference. And that, that afternoon, he prayed to receive Jesus as the Savior. And I'm asking you to do the same thing. And you know what? Jesus died on the cross publicly for you. And I'd like to invite you up to the front and say, you know what? Now is the time to stand with him. And even if nobody does this, I'm going to give you this opportunity, but I hope and pray as there were people in the first service that you would come forward right now. And let us pray for you. Uh, maybe the uh, band could come up and, and just give us a, a little bit of music. But just make that decision. Come down to the front and we're going to pray with you and give you an opportunity to just, I'll, I'll lead you through a prayer of salvation that you can give your heart to Jesus right now. You know, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in. Jesus is not the 82nd airborne. He's not going to kick in the door of your life. He's inviting you. And I'd like us to all just bow our heads and close our eyes and start to pray. And if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, I would ask you to come forward. I know that's challenging. But I believe that Jesus will meet you here today. And in a few moments, I will pray.
Maybe you guys could just do some instrumental music. I know I'm throwing you a curveball. Thank you. I'm going to take a moment and pray. I just encourage you to come forward. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Joel Rosenberg. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Joel's ministry by visiting joelrosenberg.com.